Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With, uh, who are we? Tamson and Dan uh, reading the paper. Yeah, the Andy Williams show. Yes, Tamson and Dan read the paper. Exactly On, right. On uh, Wednesday. January, January 24th. January 24th. Okay, you're with it now. I'm with it now. We're on the air. Yep. All right. So, uh, as, as always. It's a balmy day here. Uh, well, we're, we're up to 40 degrees. Is that right? Yeah. Really? It looks yeah. terrible out there. It looks... It's exciting to us because we've been down in the, in the teens yeah. and the 20s for a while. Single digits. Everything was frozen. Frozen. And snow We had though. some snowstorms. Oh, we went skiing. Yeah. Well, well let's... Well, oh, that's right. We went skiing here. Yeah, we should mention that. It snowed here and we were out there on our cross-country skis last Thursday and Friday or Friday or something. Friday there was snow. Yeah. And it was enough that... Uh, we have these wacky skis. They're called Hokies or something. Yeah, we went Friday and Saturday. Yeah. Two days. And uh, you just, you know, in the fields by our house. Yes, but you can just strap them on. To your shoes, to your boots. Yeah, yeah they're somewhere between Nothing skis so- and snowshoes. Yeah, they're pretty much skis. No, you use, you use ski poles. They're very fat skis. I, you go flying across the snow. <laughs> you don't go flying. Yeah, it's uh, um, your skis. But so we were out, and it was bitterly cold. Yeah. But of course, when you're doing that kind of Nordic or cross-country ski motion thing, you, you, warm. you, you warm up pretty fast. Right. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It always seems like an incredible annoyance. Well, to get all the gear on, yeah. Yeah, to get to find your gloves and yeah. find your hat. Well, the truth is, bundle we, up. We didn't have weather like this for two years. So you're saying, did we have gloves? Did we have gloves? Yeah, right. Do we have right. scarves? Right. right. So, but but we do. We had them. They so were in the we closet. Were out there. Yeah, it was good in the fresh air. Yeah. yeah. Great. Great. So uh, we had we skied on Friday. We skied on Saturday. And then we got into the car, and we headed to Mohonk Mountain House, which is what you do when it snows, right? They actually had less snow up there than we had. Don't ruin it. We went to Mohonk Mountain House, which is on a mountain, so you know there's snow. They had about the same, I think, maybe a little bit less. And uh, But which means it was still it was uh, pitch white. It was, you know, s- snow all over. Very beautiful, natural setting. Pitch white? That's his phrase. You ever hear that one? No, I've heard pitch dark. It's from Peanuts. It's uh, Peanuts. Pitch white. Yeah, I think Linus <laughs> said at one point, it's pitch white outside. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, we're out there in Mohawk, and uh, again, great natural setting. And uh, we took advantage of it. We went uh, snowshoeing, right? We went snowshoeing right. on these paths. One morning, uh, you said... It took us a while to get... Yeah. Around Your it. idea was, you know what we should do first thing in the morning at uh, 7.30 in the morning when it's 11 degrees? Let's go snowshoeing, which we did. Uh, we went snowshoeing uh, two different days, and it was a lot of fun. There were these things called Crescent Moon, I think is the name, of the brand of the new snowshoes they have, which are kind of these kind of interesting looking things that look like it's very hard plastic as opposed to the metal things we've used in the past. And they're relatively easy on, easy off, and you can make tracks in snow. Maybe not the deepest snow, but certainly could handle this snow. And we were uh, moving along. We were trucking along in, in the natural setting, in the pitch white. So uh, we got to do that, and we got to do the, the wonderful indoor swimming day of there. But the, the raison d'etre, the reason we were there that particular weekend. Raison d'etre? Yeah. I'm raison d'etre? Yeah, that too. Uh, the reason we were there was because it was jazz on the mountain. 
Yeah, his weekend. Which we mobile. skipped last year. Right. Well, but don't don't harp on what we skipped. Let's harp on what we did. So we were there uh, for Jazz Weekend. And some may remember, we've gone to Jazz Weekend in the past, Mohawk has, particular weekend in January when it's has trouble filling the rooms. And they have uh, <laughs> uh, a bunch yeah. of jazz performers who come up and do a jazz program. Uh, and it oh, used to Daniel, be, Daniel. All right, Daniel, how would you, you describe it? This is not... How would you describe for it? For years... So, Mohawk always plans events. Yes. It's a grand old hotel right. in upstate New York. And they plan events, you know, you know, to entice people to come. And it's year-round. They have various things right. going on. Mm-hmm. All kinds of crazy things. Right. right? Well, we talked before. It was they have the... Um, you know, the puzzle, the word puzzle weekend. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have knitting. They have uh, ballroom dancing. They have solving mysteries. Right. And for many years, over 20 years, there was kind of a collaboration with the radio station WBGO. Right. Where they would do a fundraiser and put on a program curated by Michael Bourne, the uh, beloved uh, jazz DJ for the station, and he would, you know, pull together uh, great jazz performers, and uh, in a bleak weekend in January. At Mohawk. At Mohawk. Right. He has since passed away. But but point being, point one, we we went to several of those. We went to several of those. You you used to listen to WBGO. I don't know if you still do, or that was a... I don't, but it's... Okay. It is a jazz station entirely, but he was a program director. And um, so we went up mm-hmm. for a couple of those. and uh, They were good. They, they were really good. good. They, they were, were generally good. You're listening to concerts three times a day yeah. uh, for the weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually yeah. we'd stay about two nights. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's nothing like hearing live music right. in you know, a very intimate setting because no rooms are especially huge mm-hmm. uh, at Mohonk. And uh, it's been great. So, since Michael Bourne, there's been a transition. Uh, they struggled on, I guess, trying people out or something. And for the last couple of years, the uh, new curator of the Jazz Weekend has been Pete. Malin Vieri, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he is a um, professor at uh, SUNY Purchase in the music department. I think I I haven't memorized his uh, no I don't, he, resume, but I think he's been head of the department right. or you know he's so uh, he's an accomplished jazz pianist, uh, and he uh, he's the one who used the word curate. Or which means he finds the talent that they're going to present and arranges for all that, and then MCs the weekend. And it seems that you know the, the the school of purchase plays into this because he has a lot of students. One student's become prominent, Samara Joy, who's very well known, and he has uh, a couple of other other very talented folks. And he tends to bring one or two of them to the mountain, and he's got other contacts beside because he's a performer, and he also draws on the people who used to appear with Michael Bourne. So they have a lot of talent available, and that's what we got to see this weekend, and it was great. 
Really? I mean, there's no point in going into terrible detail, but we'll give you an idea of what we saw. Uh, you know, it began uh, with a presentation on uh, the American Songbook by a fellow named Will Friedwald, who's sort of a music historian. And it was notable. Yeah, it, was, it was lukewarm. It was notable. He had a lot of older film, and he was trying to explain aspects of the development of the American Songbook and, and even how, as related to jazz. So I don't know how much he accomplished, but we got to see. Well, that was fun. I thought it was a nice change. There's only so many concerts you can listen to back to back to back to back. Yes, but this was the first so, one. But yes, but... It, you know, I, I thought that was fun. How many versions of Night and Day by Frank Sinatra did you want to see? Um, fewer than you would <laughs> <laughs> listen to. Right. That's for sure. He played four of them. Yeah. And he played them through. It yeah, wasn't, he said, I mean. let's listen to 10 seconds of this. No. We got to hear, uh, you know, from the beat, beat, beat of the time. And, and actually, the some through. of his distinctions were a little uh, fine yeah. for me. Yeah. I, um, so, but he did that, and he did that with, you know, several different songs. But there was one people. recording of Sinatra, the prime recording from film of him singing Night Day, which was kind of electric. So uh, you get the idea. So it's, it's worth seeing. And he, he had uh, he had different folks. He had Carmen McRae up there. And it's, it's some good, some personalities are worth seeing their performances. I thought the Carmen McRae, um, Sam and Amos Jr. concert footage was kind of interesting. That was great. Yeah. That was great to see that, actually. Yeah. And to, I didn't know much about Carmen McRae. So yeah. I was glad for the introduction through that. So, yeah. And uh, Sammy Davis is kind of a character. So the two of them together was pretty funny. Um, yeah, so not even, so that was the first thing. And then uh, we, as, as Tams has said, it could be two or three concerts a day, two or three performances a day. The next one we saw was uh, Saturday evening. And that was a woman named Aeneas Reno. And she was performing songs that had been sung by Carmen McRae. Uh not, not yeah, so the three the they had three vocal concerts, right. really, and each one was a tribute right. to a particular performer, which right. I thought was a clever thing to do. Yeah, um, and uh, this was a very young girl. Yeah, 20. she's twenty. Twenty. Yeah, and uh, when you think uh, of Carmen McRae, or now that I know who she is, yeah. you don't think of a young girl's voice, right? Um, and this performer, Anais Reno, or Anais, I'm probably not saying it quite right, was fantastic. She had a fantastic she voice. She had an unbelievable voice. Yeah. She had a wonderful presence. Yeah. Uh, she was just terrific. Yeah. Just a delight. Um, and, you know, a sort of depth and soulful presentation that kind of Belied her young years, yeah. <laughs> um, and so that so that was great. That started off uh, the weekend, I thought, with a bang. Right, and then the next performance in, in a similar type approach, uh, a young woman named Sage Myers, also connected with the SUNY Persis, but just a few years older, perhaps, than uh, Anais Reno, uh, was doing songs made popular by Mahalia Jackson. Uh, and again, they're not they're not imitating these performers, but they're singing in a style that's somewhat related to the folks that they're featuring. And uh, you've always been a big Mahalia Jackson fan, so what do you think of, of that performance? Well, of course, I highly enjoyed it. It was a mix of uh, um, the types of songs she sang. The first two 
Joshua at the Battle of Jericho, yeah. and then Ain't Gonna Study War No More were right out of my childhood. Right. I mean, uh, Ms. Bailey, um, the my choir director in like fourth and fifth grade yeah. at the Warner Presbyterian Church yeah. in suburban Maryland, I mean, she was teaching us these songs. So it shows you the reach yeah. of Mahalia Jackson, even to into suburban Maryland. And uh, it just, uh, that was really moving to me because I think recently I was thinking about Joshua at the Battle of Jericho and thinking, you know, I'm, I probably don't even know anybody who knows that song now. And uh, so that was great. Yeah. And she, um, and the concert was, her, the selections were very interesting. Um, sometimes you get a tribute to somebody and it's all the most famous tired stuff and uh this was fascinating yeah. there was also um i guess a couple of cuts from an album that she did with duke ellington duke ellington convinced yeah. her to do because mahalia jackson was famous for only singing church yeah. music etc and he wanted her to participate in this black brown and beige right. album that he was putting together. Yeah, we'll and have to play He that. invited himself, according to the, the story told it that night, he invited himself to dinner at her house and talked her into yeah. doing this project uh, with yeah. him. So that was great. And another, you know, terrific young woman with the wonderful poise and a great voice. Yes, and then they had uh, a uh, tribute to Peggy Lee, sung by a woman named, uh, this is the next day, sung by a woman named uh, Gabriel Stravelli. Uh, and this is a woman who's a little older. It was a more polished performance. It was a great performance. Yeah, an uh, experienced performer. Yeah, experienced yeah. performer. And you, and you could tell the difference. But, yeah. uh, and I'm not even sure she had the voice that the other two had. But, uh, you know, with Puggy Lee's a little more popular music-oriented, uh, more recognizable tunes perhaps, some of them written by Peggy Lee. Of course, but, the famous Fever. Fever was uh, what she closed with. And, and, uh, uh, yeah. and stuff from Lady and a Tramp and things like that. So, uh, yeah. Uh, very so, upbeat. So those, those three, three separate tribute performances were great. And they had some of the same people that um, Malaverne, um played the piano yeah. with all, during all those concerts, right? Am I, I think right? so, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and a great trumpet player, Bruce Harris, yeah. was also... Right. Uh, accompanying them and uh they were you know yeah, the, again it's like the, it's the, the musicians in your, in your living room basically. the quality of the the musicians was just superb yeah and, and they're great and they relate great to each other and they mix and match a little bit in particular one of the uh, then there was an afternoon performance in the so-called parlor games and uh parlor games means just that for this group it's mix and match so now on the scene were the folks that we had seen before uh, Martin Wind on the bass, Scott Robinson on a bunch of horns, and Helen sung at the piano. And uh, they worked together, but they mixed it up a little bit in the parlor games. Uh, and uh, with with the horn player that you just mentioned, uh, and with uh, Gabrielle Stravelli, and they, they did different things. And it was it was great. And, it, and you know, it's all, I, I keep saying it's great. It doesn't really mean very much. But it, it was wonderful. And then the, the last morning... Monday morning, uh, Martin Winhill and Sung and Scott Robinson just performed together. And again, they performed in the past together. And, and it was interesting to me about that is that you're, you've, you've been known to say to me every once in a while when I'm listening to music, 
uh, you know, you don't want to listen to that particular stuff as you walk by the room. No, I hate jazz. I hate you, jazz. You say it's esoteric jazz. And and, and, and the, the, the not, secret... Not accessible. The truth is... You need to have had a few drinks. This was... Consume something. This, this, was, this was jazz with a capital J. Uh, and you enjoyed it I don't it know what it was, deal. but it was wonderful. And it was uh, jazz. Uh, it's Trust a me, performance. that's what it was. But, you know, going back to the parlor games, yeah. I mean, such wacky stuff was going on. At one point, Scott Robinson... Yeah. Who is a nut? Yeah, but he's a nut who can play Anything, any instrument, any, any wind instrument. Basically. And yeah. uh, he says, uh, "We're now going to do a piece for three basses." Yeah, and there were two string basses. Yeah, and plus him on a bass, bass saxophone, saxophone right. that was five feet tall. It was, it was just, well, it was just crazy. Idea. So he's got it. He plays the bass saxophone. He plays what we think of as a regular saxophone. Uh, he plays uh, a trumpet. Uh, he plays the flute. I mean, well, I, he plays anything. He may play other things. He, yeah, this he, is what we saw him play there. And sometimes he's performing. He has one, you know. So he's got all, he's got the tr- he's got the. Saxophone hanging from yeah, he's got his one lanyard, in his hand and one that he's playing, and, and uh, the trumpet under his. Right. Elbow. But he's playing reed instruments and non-reed yeah. instruments. It's crazy what he can do. So, but to follow that up, yeah. then they did a piece with four basses, and it was four, four basses. actual basses and yeah. string basses, right. which was wonderful too. So you know, it was just and, uh, and was a lot of you know what um, they call that? That's called jazz. So uh, <laughs> that's what that is. So in any event, anyway, we had a great weekend. So uh, you should go next next year. Uh, it's every January. It's going to be next January tenth, Mohonk Mountain House. All right, we have to move on. We have to move on, honey. We have to move on. So we're actually going uh, to see uh, a performance tomorrow in New York City. The Encore series, which has revivals of musicals, which wouldn't necessarily be revived. Um, in this case, it's Once Upon a Mattress which was uh, famously written by uh, Mary Rogers, right, Townsend? Right. Daughter of Richard Rogers. Your girl. Yes. Mother of Adam Quattel. Which we're going to get to in a second. Okay. But, uh, and it's, you know, The Princess of the Pea, uh, a musical version. Uh, Carol Burnett was the original star when it was on in the early 60s. Originated the role. Originated the role. Yes, thank you. And uh, this will be Sutton Foster, who might, in Broadway circles, be a bigger name than Carol Burnett. So uh, that will be fun. And and you mentioned uh, Adam Gattel. Um, Adam Gattel now has a new, new musical. He, of course, wrote Light in the Piazza. And hadn't had written too much since. I'm not going to say nothing. But hadn't written too much since, at least that uh, seen a lot of Broadway. And uh, he's got a new musical, Days of Wine and Roses. Uh, which has a serious cast, which is uh, uh, Kelly O'Hara and Brian Dorsey James. and um, Based on the movie. Days of Wine and Roses, which right. is uh, about uh, a couple of alcoholics. Yeah. Uh, and as they say, the very interesting article in the Times interview, uh, primarily of Kelly O'Hara, but the other creative uh, participants, and saying, yeah, this was kind of a long shot project at the start. It's not really a great... Subject for a musical, it seems too challenging. No kidding. And too crazy. There's a little bit going on here in that uh, both uh, the person I wrote, brought in to write the play, to write the book, Craig Lucas, had an addiction problem, serious addiction problem. And Adam Gattel 
had a serious addiction problem. And they bring up, of course, Richard Rogers had a serious addiction problem. So there you go. And uh, not to mention Mary Rogers. Well, they don't mention that anymore. I don't know if they say, if you would call it an addiction problem, but she definitely yeah. had... Took drugs and alcohol. I mean, and, yeah. and, uh, and Rogers, Richard Rogers was an alcoholic. And they, Adam Cattell declined to go into detail. He just said, let's just say I'm not a perfect person and I'm recovering from that. So... Uh, but this they've been working on this. Yes, since the, the light in the piazza. The... Um, Adam Gattel, Craig Lucas, Kelly O'Hara, yeah. and Brian, Brian Darcy James right. for like 20 years. Yeah. You know, um, and it, I mean, lots of musicals take forever to come about. Not this but, long. Not this long. Well, not, I don't know about it's that. All but this- uh, anyway, yeah. it is a terrible subject for a musical. Yeah. It is, and then they'll be challenged. And I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of articles about this, so yeah. apparently they're trying to... Well... It's uh, it, I'm counteract. Sh- that. It might be very good. I don't and know if we're going to see it or not. This <laughs> article that you read, people yeah. were walking out of it saying, uh, you know, how much it meant to them because they, they were alcoholics, were, yeah. because they are alcoholics or right. were alcoholics or whatever. Yeah. Um, so you know, I don't know. Well, we don't have to decide now whether we're going to see it or not. But it it's uh, pretty intense, and they obviously committed a lot of time and effort to do it. Um. So we shall see. And again, it's not like Adam Cattell's put a lot of music out there. Yeah, I but, think he has sort of has. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so, honestly. I mean, I'm not saying nothing, but... Uh, All right, let's not go further on this because we're... I'm pretty sure. Okay. All yeah. Right. But in any event, they, of I course... I see his name all the time. Really? Yeah. You must travel in different circles than I do. But uh, Light in the Piazza was a real deal. So uh, I thought the music Light in the Piazza was quite good. Didn't you? It's okay. I don't, you just, know. Just okay? I don't wake up in the middle of the night humming the tunes. Really? No. Good. It's good for your sleep. All right. So in any event, that, that, that's tomorrow. So you were going to talk about uh, food, menus, restaurants. Well, yeah. Yeah. We're always interested in food. We're yeah. still, um, you know, waiting for new restaurants to open up in our area. There's a dearth. Mm-hmm. But... Um, Meanwhile, the New York Times did a two-page article about menus. They said, uh, starts out saying, you know, over the past year, the Times uh, staff has been traveling the country looking for the new best restaurants and so on. And and while they were doing that, we had them take a look at what's going on in the menus to see what the menus tell us about what's going on in restaurants. Right. And uh, so th- let me just say this. It's, it's one of the worst articles ever. Well, okay. I'll tell you why. There's a lot of competition okay? for that, but yes. Uh, not for everybody. For some people, this is going to be a great article. But we bought a newspaper that was badly printed. Oh, really? And so oh, well, yeah. they have they yeah. have printed all these, you know. It's online. Honey. Essentially pictures yeah. of the menus. Yeah, and it doesn't come out. And uh, the... Um, you can't read. Well, I don't think our newspaper is badly printed because no, 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 the regular is. type is okay. No, 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 no. If you look at it, there's double images. Yes, but this of is everything. Okay, but this is all right. The the color part, the colors ah, weren't matched oh, up. The, colors aren't the right. menus are in color. All right. They're not matched up, and uh, all right. so it's what, a mess. You so let's can't, move on. We'll move you can't on. read anything. Sure. Also, online, it wasn't the best yeah, that, article either because it, it was. Uh, 
hard to stop it and look at stuff. I mean, it was okay. not that functional. Let's, but let's get let me tell you what's going on. What? Okay. Um, in menus. First of all, menus have gotten... First of all, menus are back. Yeah. Forget about the um, scanning the QR code. Okay. Everybody hated that anyway. Right. Some people say they liked it, but I... I they're lying. I can't believe right, that. Yeah. And, the, and they're usually not up to date, etc. So physical menus are back. Yeah. Uh, they are... Generally smaller and shorter, yeah. easier to handle. Okay, they have funky prints, yeah. fonts. Okay, is it seems to be in style. Right, and like I said, you know, kind of short and sweet. Yeah, there's also seems to be a tendency instead of calling things apps, entrees, yeah. dessert as the main character categories yeah. on a menu. It's uh, one of the big things now is. Small plates, big plates, mm-hmm. bigger plates. Okay. Kind of idea. Um, uh, so that's a little bit interesting. Um, a lot more non-alcoholic options on the drinks menus. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot more menus that include the uh, mention of various staff and mention of their mission statement. Not to... And also mentioning, uh, you know, what kind of service charge uh-huh. they good. are recommending or adding, uh-huh. and where does that service charge go? Okay. You know, how it's divided up, uh, things like that. Um, a lot of fun design details, including yeah. blind embossing. You know, when there's just like a raised design yeah. in the menu with no ink, that yeah. that seems popular. Um, so. A lot of different uh, design ideas going on. Now, in terms of food, what does it tell us about the foods that are being <laughs> eaten? Caesar salad is still there. Okay. You got, you know, no matter how clever and innovative the restaurant is, there seems always to be right. a version of Caesar salad, whether it's with kale or, you know, whatever. We America is stuck on Caesar salad. Um, also, caviar. Seems very popular on mm. menus. Okay. I, I don't even know if we've ever ordered caviar. No. On a menu. No. So, and I haven't really noticed it. Um, fried chicken is everywhere. Really? Everywhere. French restaurants, Japanese restaurants, you know, all kinds of restaurants. And panna cotta. Oh, your favorite. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we've been obsessed with panna cotta. You've been obsessed with panna cotta, but yes, I like it. Wait a minute, I saw you. I saw you go up to the panna cotta at uh, obsessed is a strong word. No, but it's just that uh, we say if they have panna cotta, we'll we'll eat it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, And it wasn't like uh, that was the result of any articles I read or food shows I watch or anything at all. It just suddenly panna cotta appealed to me, and apparently, I'm not alone. Okay. Doesn't that freak you out when that happens? It's just like, it's, uh, you know, suddenly you have a taste for something out of, okay. out of nowhere. And so, you know, we're all the same. You're ahead we're of the all curve. the same. You were ahead of the curve. No, right? I wasn't ahead of the curve. I'm right in there w- with the general public. And it's not, you know, I don't even know why. Well, you're, you, you've, you've liked panna cotta for a long time. So you're ahead of the curve. All right. Well, that's good. That's good. It's a good thing. Okay. So there was an article about um, a strange uh, television show 
Uh, Strange is putting it mildly. Yeah, called Last One Laughing. So this is this was developed in Japan originally by Amazon, uh, and uh, the idea was ten comedians gather in a room and try to make each other laugh, and the last one to keep a straight face wins. Well, it wasn't developed by Amazon. Yes, it was. It was developed by a Japanese comedian. Came up with the idea. Yeah. And sold it to Amazon. Okay, that's and close enough. For Amazon me. is basically saying Amazon produced this will never work in a million years. But they produced it, but so they, they did because yeah. it was inexpensive. Yes, okay? they it was did. called Documental. Right. Well, that was the initial one. But the the fact of the matter is that even though the format doesn't sound like it could work or that would be that interesting, it did work and it was interesting and it was a tremendous hit in Japan. In Japan, and it was a huge hit. Huge hit in Japan, and. And they follow that up by uh, introducing it in a bunch of other countries. And in almost every other country, it's been a huge hit. Well, it wasn't an easy sell. Yeah. yeah well, it doesn't showed, sound like much showed, to me. It they, sounds, they tried to sell it in Germany. And they showed them the, uh, you know, the Japanese version. Right, right. The Japanese version happens to be quite ribald. Scatological is the word. And scatological. Ribald and scatological are not the same. Right, I'll, they're not. I'll explain it to you later. But but the scatological um, is, is actually the yeah. right word. <laughs> no, <laughs> but they said it was also quite uh, racy. Right. Yeah. Okay. Quite not family friendly. Right. So the Germans said, can we do this but make it more family friendly? Yeah. And they did. Yeah. Huge hit. Huge hit. But here's what Huge hit in France. But here's, here's Huge what, hit in Mexico. Yeah, so, so I don't have any Amazon stock. So that's not what's driving my interest in this. What drives my interest in this is that they recognized... Uh, what we recognized with Dinner for One. Well, yes. Okay. Related, that is there that, is a cultural context. You know, humor, that doesn't necessarily travel right. from country to country to country. Right, okay? exactly because right. Because they have tried, you know... You would think somebody in the U.S. Mm-hmm. would uh, be watching the German right. version or something. It won't no. work. No. no. They recognize they, immediately that each country has its own sensibilities and sense of humor. And that they would the shows would focus uh, within the confines of that particular country. So they've got the Japanese version. They've got the German version. They've got the Irish version. Uh, and uh, they don't cross over. You know, they don't expect anybody in one country to tune into the others. Uh, and they're right. Okay, right. they're they right. They say on the Irish version, yeah. there is it's so you know it's such a deep dive into Irish concept, right? That even they Graham, don't even think uh, you know yeah, the English Brits one. would get Brits the jokes. Get it. Get it. You know? But they they have a quote here from Graham Norton. He says that's one of the things that's great about the show is because it's not it, it's made in a way that's distinctly focused in in uh, an intense way on that particular part of the world. They don't dumb it down to make it international in scope uh, to respond to different people's sensitivities. They don't do that. They just say, we know the Irish, they will go for this, and boom. And it's a separate show. And that's the magic of it. It works. You don't, strangely, you don't have anything like this in the U.S. as far as I can tell. They don't say, they're vague on this, but it doesn't sound like there's a version in the U.S. that was unsuccessful. It sounds like there was no version in the U.S. And Doesn't it say near the end they're developing one or something? Maybe it does. I don't know. But they say that U.S. Mm-hmm. you know Amazon's efforts in the U.S. are more focused on big blockbuster type shows or uh, things like Reacher. But uh, but anyway, it, comedy can be extremely. But all comedy's local. 
Local. All, all comedy is local. Right. It's like all politics. All comedy is local. So, uh, you know, that's a good example of that. Okay, so you had something about uh, comics? The Non-fiction? comics, yes, right? Yeah, the comics, right. Um, so it turns out, and this is, um, turns out one in four books sold in France yeah. is a graphic novel. Really? And more and more, this includes nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Actually, mm-hmm. Um, in you know, in comic format, graphic novel format, works written by journalists and historians mm-hmm. about people or subjects, whatever, mm-hmm. have gotten more and more and more popular, and it's a growing trend. Uh, apparently, there's a um, comic book international comic book show about to start in france yeah in the southwestern france somewhere and uh you know that this is going to be a big theme uh in that uh show about nonfiction. now you don't see so much nonfiction comic books in the u.s okay so you know maybe that's coming. Although it was, it, it they did originate in the U.S. with a book by Joe Sacco called Palestine in 1993. Uh, but anyway, so just a little heads up there. All right. You know something that's coming down the pike. Learning your history. All right. Well, Hazi will be all over and it with, yeah. with pictures mm. in small bites. Mm. I don't know. Does that mean we're getting dumber? No. Or, it doesn't mean we're getting smarter, though. Uh, it perhaps means people are less interested in reading and uh, more interested in, uh, you know, multimedia presentations. Yeah. But anyway, it's interesting that Not a big uh, it's interesting. It's so popular in France. You can go to a um, comic book store in Paris called Boulantet and uh, have quite a selection. All right. So, uh, yeah, that is interesting. Um so Norman Jewison died. So Norman Jewison, uh, it's interesting to me because I didn't really fully appreciate, I mean, he's a director, film director, and he's well known for a bunch of films at the times featured in The Heat of the Night, which I don't think is his best film, but whatever. And it did win uh, Best Picture. Um, so there you have that. But uh, it's amazing how many films this guy directed, or the, or the range of his films is unbelievable. He, he's a Canadian. He was born in Canada. And uh, let me just, I don't have to do much but read the list of movies. You, it's hard to connect this to one person. He starts, or near the beginning of his career, he's directing Doris Day movies. He, he directed The Thrill of It All. And he directed Send Me No Flowers. Those are the sort of the Jim Garner, Rock Hudson type movies. Yeah. Which have their own charms. Then he's directing The Cincinnati Kid with Steve McQueen. You may remember that. And then The Russians Are Coming. The Russians Are Coming. You remember that? Yeah. It's a really funny film with Carl Reiner. But it's satire of Cold War paranoia. It's a completely different kind of film. Then he goes back with Steve McQueen and the Thomas Crown Affair, following that in The Heat of the Night, which is uh, about a criminal investigation in the South uh, with Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger, uh, the tension being the fact that uh, Sidney Poitier being a black detective in the South and, and the issues that that raises and and the respect that he eventually earns. 
which, by the way, beat out for Best Picture, Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate. It's, it's unbelievable. Those three films are in the same year. I mean, hmm. I, I think The Heat of Night was the, the lesser of the three films, but it's not the point. They're both, they're all very good films. Um, pretty amazing. So, uh, in any event, and, and then, of course, he's not done. It, the next film worth mentioning, uh, he's the director of Fiddler on the Roof. And he says that he, this is a musical, obviously, about uh, Eastern European Jews. And he always said he got the job because people assumed he was Jewish because his name is Norman Jewison. He's not Jewish. <laughs> All right. And just uh, to prove that point, his next assignment is Jesus Christ Superstar, which he directs just a couple of years later. Um, uh, and uh, again, still not done. Uh, he's directed Moonstruck. Mm-hmm. You know, with Cher and Nicolas Cage, which is a great film. Yeah. Great film about an Italian-American family. Um, and uh, Snap out of it. Snap out of it. it says, she slaps him in the face and says, snap out of it. Um, and then he directed Soldier Story. You remember we saw that play? Yes. Yeah. Uh, then Hurricane, about Hurricane Carter with Denzel Washington. It's just kind of amazing. That he directed such a range of movies. Mm-hmm. It's just unbelievable. Um, so anyway, that was, to me was just worth mentioning. I would have never uh, believed that the same guy directed all these, all, these, all these films. Some comics, some quite serious. Anyway, I was struck by that. So you are going to catch us up on Beatrix Potter. Yeah, you know, in the time series about, uh, you know... Overlooked no longer, or right. something like that. Oh. Uh, um, they uh, did a write up of Beatrix Potter. Right. And Beatrix Potter, of course, wrote Peter Rabbit. Mm-hmm. Peter Rabbit has sold probably in excess of 45 million copies. Wow. All right. And uh, I don't know if Pepper and Hazel have a copy, but I know Hazi does. And we've read it to him, okay? Yeah. Or he, he's read, or we ha- or maybe it's uh, our family copy. It's kind of falling to pieces. Everyone has a copy yeah. of Peter Rabbit. Okay, well, okay? anyway. No um, one does not have a copy of Peter Rabbit. I, and, you know, as she wrote it, as she illustrated it. Okay, right. so here's the interesting thing. She's born 1866, uh, dies 1943, all right? She wrote this little book. She had an eye. She, um, you know, the the way she she, you know, she was kind of uh, brought up nicely. Okay, her father was her family was pretty well to do. Mm-hmm. Grandfather was a highly successful merchant, mm-hmm. and uh, her brother was sent to school. She was not. She was homeschooled by the governess, Mm -hmm. you know, as one does, all right? And uh, she, you know, learns the normal stuff, does some art, is interested in uh, um, insects and fungus, and goes to the Natural History Museum a bit. And she's flailing about trying to figure out what to do, you know, how, you know... Not that women have to do anything in that day and age, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, she, uh, at a certain point, is um, somebody gives her the idea to turn some letters she wrote, 
some what she called uh, picture letters that she wrote to a friend's uh, children into books, which is what she does. She sends Peter Rabbit out Mm -hmm. to at least six publishers, and uh, it was rejected. She's, uh, you know, highly disappointed. She says, I don't know if this will ever get published. She self-publishes it. 250 yeah, copies. As, I, it's unbelievable you could do that. But in any event, she did. Well, why not? You just go to a printer. Yeah, okay. Okay. I mean, it wasn't that long before. I mean, it wasn't, there hadn't even been publishers with, mm-hmm. with that were big businesses for that long. There was a time, I think, when you just went to the printer right. and said, here, this is what I've got printed. Okay, this, that's okay? what she did. So this is, you know, this is in 1900, and uh, she self-publishes 250 copies. There's such demand, she has to order another 200. And by now, and a, by 1902, uh, Frederick Warren and company is interested. And uh, they start publishing her book like crazy. Yeah. Um, and uh, so she did, as I said, it's a small book. She did all the illustrations, the writing. What's really interesting about the whole business is She's highly involved in the business. At the get-go, she designs a um, Peter Rabbit doll. Yeah, she's merchandising. Yeah, she's she's into the merchandising, and she maintains uh, a, a level of control mm-hmm. over the merchandising um, throughout. And that that was new and different, you know, for a woman or even. Really, writers in general to be so involved in the design, copyright, quality control yeah. as she was. So she makes some money. All right. A lot of money. And uh, what does she do with the money? Nothing fancy. I mean, she buys land. She's right. she's interested in, you know, preserving, you know, the farmland and right. the beauty that she's uh, writing about. Eventually, when she's 47, she gets married. Yeah. She had been engaged earlier to somebody unsuitable. Really? He cleverly yeah. passed away cleverly, before they yeah, could right. get yeah. married. Yeah. So it was not a problem. But eventually, when she's 47, she uh, gets married. And she actually ends up being a, a sheep breeder. Um, and they say probably a lot of people in her neighborhood didn't even know she was, you know, a Beatrix Potter. She was Mrs. Healis. Mm. When she dies, she leaves 4,000 acres to the English National Trust mm-hmm. uh, of her farmland in the Lake District. So, well, uh, I think she wrote a few other books, too. But she wrote know. a lot. She yeah. wrote qu- quite a few books yeah. and did other illustrations. Right. Um, so she Look, was, the illustrations must have been a key to this. I mean, it's not the most amazingly compelling story of all time. But uh, the illustrations, I think, help sell. But it's not a stupid story. No, it's not a stupid you know, story. It's a good story. It's actually it's described in the article as whimsical but dark. Right. Uh, you oh, know, because yeah. she's a little bit, you know, um, true to life about uh, farming. farm animals. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the, the other thing they point out is she is quite particular and accurate with the anatomical details of the animals. Right, but of course, they do wear clothes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> you know? So there's this wonderful right. sort of tension between uh, her creativity and the realism. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, Beatrix Potter, more than just a uh, 
children's book writer, a businesswoman, okay. etc. All right, so, cheap reader. No, that's interesting. So um, the final uh, piece, final story we have has to do with Sidney Crosby, who uh, hockey player for Pittsburgh, which some would describe as the greatest player of all time. Maybe, maybe not, but he's in the conversation. He's at the high, high level. Uh, and he's now a veteran, and he's probably nearing the end of his career, and he's got all kinds of records and all that kind of thing. But this story is about uh, a recent game uh, in which Sidney Crosby was playing in Las Vegas uh, against the Golden Knights. It's a very good team, and it was kind of an important game. And it was 2-2 in the final period, and then uh, uh, a player on the other team, a fellow named Brendan Brisson, scores his first goal, young guys, third game ever, and that wins the game for Vegas. They beat Pittsburgh. Well, it's an interesting story because Sidney Crosby's agent has always been Pat Brisson, who was uh, Brendan Brisson's father, and uh, who, of course, was at the game. And, and it, Sidney Crosby, by reputation is the most gracious guy in the world. And he texts uh, Pat and he says, uh, why don't you, um, let's get together. Let's have a quick talk after the game outside the stadium and uh, see if Brendan's interested. And sure enough, uh, he the three of them meet and Sidney Crosby um, hands Brendan a stick. He says, when I got into the league, once more all the veterans would give a rookie a stick, one of their own sticks. And, uh, here you go. So um, Brendan is kind of overwhelmed. And it's kind of funny because Brendan's a pro, mm-hmm. you know, and yet it's Sidney Crosby. But here's the kicker. Um, when uh, there was a time when Crosby just got into the league and uh, Brendan and, and Pat Brisson's kids were young, that he used to spend time at Pat's house. It was in, on the West mm-hmm. Coast. And uh, there is a story where he was out there and is staying with them. And uh, Patterson's youngest son, Jordan, you know, cracked his head on something. He had to go to the hospital, get stitches. So uh, the parents rush Jordan to the hospital and they say to Sydney, can you keep an eye on Brendan while we're gone? He says, sure. They come back that evening and they, he says to him, um, uh, he said, this is the quote. He says, I see Sid and I ask, how did it go? Where's Brendan? And uh, Sidney goes, well, I gave him a bath, got him in his superhero pajamas, and he's sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> he says, okay. It's right. Sidney Crosby. And uh, here's the picture of uh, Sidney Crosby and Brendan Brisson when he's three years old. <laughs> um, how's that? So, um, quite the babysitter, huh? Right. And you're, you're relating to this. You're saying to yourself, been there, done that. Well, it's it just, you know, Sidney Crosby must have been 20-something. Yeah, so very no, young, a very young, 20. very cute story. And, very, you know, they say story. to him, just watch, get a guy to go. And he's, mm-hmm. uh, he just does, does the stuff, you know. So I know mm-hmm. what to do. There you go. <laughs> He's sleeping. All right. So there you go. There's Sidney Crosby babysitting story of the week. Uh, All right. So uh, we're off to the city. Uh, And uh, until next week, this is Dan Abuhoff. 
And Tamsin Granger with Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. And we'll see you.